of a sudden, this huge alarm went off in my ear, this huge buzzing, like like so loud that I thought it was being from the West Coast. I thought it was a tsunami warning or an earthquake warning. It was so crazy. So I turned to the men and they weren't doing anything. And I looked at Brooks, my son, and I said, can you hear that? I'm like yelling over this sound. He just kept eating his bagel. He didn't hear anything. I just remember everyone, I couldn't speak at that point. I remember everyone saying, who do we call for your son? Who can we call? But we're new here and we don't, we don't have anybody to call. So I kept trying to say, Nick, 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 because he was far away, but he would get there. And also the mother, Allison, that of the daughter I was babysitting, I try, kept trying to say her name too. I guess she was, she was one person we could call. Right when I was wheeled in, they gave me a CAT scan. They saw that I was having a stroke and they gave me a TPA, which is a clot buster. They saw I was having a clot in my brain. And the whole time I was trying to stay in fight mode. I kept repeating, mumbling. I kept repeating, my son, my son. But it was more like, my son. I couldn't talk. The second we land at Westchester, a team comes out and they start giving me the stroke questions, which I come to find out, or I'm going to be asked this multiple times during the course of the next few days. They said, how many fingers do you see? Can you touch your finger to your nose and then touch my finger? And I could barely do that stuff with my right hand. Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear. Welcome to Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. A mechanical thrombectomy is a procedure where a catheter is used to remove a blood clot during an ischemic stroke. The patient's usually under a local anesthetic during the procedure, and combined with other treatments such as clot-busting drugs, it can be an extremely effective way of reducing the chance of post-stroke disability. In this episode, we hear from Anise Peterson from Kingston in New York, who suffered a stroke in July 2020 at the age of 43. We lived in the Bay Area, my family and I, my husband and my two-year-old son, and I was a photographer. Then we moved last year to upstate New York, and then COVID hit, so we we don't really know too many people, but that's kind of part of the stroke story, too. Every day, because of COVID, my son and I were alone because my husband works an hour away, and he has to get there early, so by the time he wakes up, we're alone in the house and we have breakfast. And then at 9am, a girl comes over that I would, I was babysitting at the time. Her mom was an essential worker. So it was kind of like they were in our COVID group. I had to get my car registered. So that morning I woke up bright and early, which never happens with him and I, and we get in the car to get to a 7.30am appointment at the registration office. We drop the car off and we walk a half a mile to the bagel shop to have breakfast. So I thought it would be really fun for him and I. By the time we get there, I see that the cafe area had been opened after COVID. So I said, great, in my mind, we're going to sit there. If anyone has anything to say about it, I'll just say, oh, whatever. My toddler's crazy. You know, just let us sit. And they would have left us alone. 
So we, we get our bagels and we sit down and the three men who were sitting in the cafe kept looking at us and it was annoying me. And then they were like laughing and I was like, what's so funny? And they said, oh, your son has cream cheese all over his face. And I, I looked at him and I was like, oh, it's so cute. And I hadn't even taken a bite of my bagel yet. And all of a sudden this huge alarm went off in my ear, this huge buzzing, like, like so loud that I thought it was being from the West Coast. I thought it was a tsunami warning or an earthquake warning. It was so crazy. So I turned to the men and they weren't doing anything. And I looked at Brooks, my son, and I said, can you hear that? I'm like yelling over this sound. He just kept eating his bagel. He didn't hear anything. So then I took my hands and I put them over my ears and I realized it was me. And I was like, oh my God, I must be really dehydrated. Something's weird. So I went to go grab his water bottle. And then I just didn't feel right to drink water at the time. So I remember just like kind of throwing it down and then feeling dizzy and nauseous. So I took my phone to dial my husband, Nick, to tell him something is weird. I don't feel right. Something's weird. And my hand, I, I couldn't put my number on the number two to open up my phone. And I kept trying and I, I was like, this is so weird. I just... I can't open the phone. And then I said, something's wrong. And I turned to the men and I screamed, call 911, something's wrong with me. I'm having a stroke or a seizure, call. And they didn't even question me. They just started dialing. And then I looked at my son and I just couldn't believe what was going on. I, I just felt so weird and sick. And I looked at him and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like I was creating a scene. So then I was like, "Ah, this can't be happening. I don't know what's happening. I'm going to stand up. I just need to walk around. I'm sure I'm dehydrated and I hadn't eaten anything yet. And we had just done this, you know, brisk walk. So I went to stand up and I immediately fell. My right side had already kind of given out. I should have known that when I couldn't open my phone, but obviously I'm in, I'm in fight mode at this point. And I fall and I just remember looking at my son and being like, is this the last time I'm going to see him? I said, no, no, I'm not done yet. I was like, this is not the end. So that's what also made me stand up. And then when I felt, I was just fighting for my life, like just, I threw up a little bit. The owner of the bagel shop came over and was like, don't get up, don't get up. The ambulance is on the way. I just remember everyone, I couldn't speak at that point. I remember everyone saying, who do we call for your son? Who can we call? But we're new here and we don't, we don't have anybody to call. So I kept trying to say, Nick, 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 because he was far away, but he would get there. And also the mother Allison, that of the daughter I was babysitting, I try, kept trying to say her name too. I guess she was she was one person we could call. The police took temporary custody of Anissa's son while she was rushed to hospital. Right when I was wheeled in, they gave me a CAT scan. They saw that I was having a stroke and they gave me a TPA, which is a clot buster. They saw I was having a clot in my brain. And the whole time I was trying to stay in fight mode. I kept repeating mumbling. I kept repeating, 
my son, my son. But it was more like, my son. I couldn't talk. And they kept telling me, he's okay, he's okay. But, and I knew it. But I just had to keep repeating it because I wanted to stay alive and I wanted to keep fighting. I wasn't ready to just like sit back and relax. So they wheel me into a room and wait for this TPA thing to happen. And for some reason, part of my speech came back. I was able to speak out of the left side of my mouth and they gave me my phone. And so I called Allison, this woman that I babysit for, and told her I'm having a stroke. I'm at the hospital. And she was like, oh my gosh, I already know. The police called me as well. For some reason, I don't even know how they did, but I can't believe you're talking to me right now. And I was like, I'm really scared. Am I going to be okay? She's, she's a, a therapist. She was like, you're going to be fine, Anise. I've got Brooks. You're going to be okay. I hang up the phone and then I felt really sick and I just wanted to call my mom. So I called my mom. She lives in Alaska. I just was like, mom, what's happening to me? What is happening to me? I was so afraid and she was like, okay, I need you to take a deep breath, calm down. And I, she said, I'm, I'm, I'm booking the flight out. Nick's on his way to you. He'll be there in a minute. This part's hard to talk about. I'm just afraid of this part because all of a sudden the clot Buster TPA started doing its job and it broke up the clot. And what was happening though, is that I went into a vegetable state. My hands started clenching up to my chest like a T-Rex and I was starting to go into the fetal position. And I said, I'm upset, mom. The nurse isn't looking at me. Something's happening to me. The nurse wasn't looking back. So I took all of the strength that I had from my core and from my left arm and I pushed my purse and my phone. I just threw my phone and that dropped our call. But I was thinking if the call drops, my mom will call 911 again and get them to give me some attention, turn back and look at me. Then they finally did turn turn around and look at me. And then she calls for other nurses and three nurses run in and they're just staring at me above the bed. And I could see the fear in their eyes. And that is when I was like, no, I am not going to die. I'm not going to die. And I just started fighting. And I just said, no, 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 this isn't it. I'm screaming it in my head. And then I heard, I couldn't breathe. I was like going, gasping for breath. I was like, and I heard one of the nurses say, go get a ventilator. And I was like, no. And then right as the woman goes to get this ventilator, the TPA had passed and all of my body was then numb tingly. And I had stopped having that huge reaction and my hands went back to sort of normal and I could breathe again. And all of the nurses were like, okay, stay with us. We thought you needed a ventilator, blah, blah, blah. We're, we're medevacing you down to Westchester. Then my husband shows up, he made it there. And he said, we're getting back in the ambulance and we're taking you in the hospital and I'll meet you down there. After being given a clot-busting drug, Anise was airlifted to Westchester Medical Center. The second we land at Westchester, a team comes out and they start giving me the stroke questions, which I come to find out, or I'm going to be asked this multiple times during the course of the next few days. They said, how many fingers do you see? Can you touch your finger to your nose and then touch my finger? And I could barely do that stuff with my right hand, my left hand. Well, both hands at that point were were tingling. They give me another CAT scan. They ask me the date, where I am. I could mumble that stuff. And 
they wheel me into the surgery unit and start prepping me after the CAT scan. Oh, they gave me a COVID test as well. Then they wheel me into surgery. And the anesthesiologist at that point was very nice and trying to become my best friend so I could let go and just be put under. And so I was starting to give up a little bit of power that I was fighting through the entire time. And then another woman came by and had me sign my rights and said I had a 10% chance of dying. And I remember I couldn't really sign with my left hand. And I remember being sarcastic and making a joke about it. Like, gosh, my handwriting's so sloppy. (laughs) Just to try to like stay present and not be scared. So they start prepping me. They start shaving my leg to go in through my groin artery. And they start prepping me to go under. All of a sudden, this is the crazy part of my story. The head surgeon walks in and changes the plan. And one of his assistants walks over to me and the room gets quiet. The room got silent. And she walks over to me and says, Anise, you'll have a better chance of survival if you stay awake for this surgery and let us, we're going to numb your hand, your wrist, and we're going to go in through your wrist and take the clot out. And that to me was like, absolutely. I will totally, I did not want to go under. I did not want to give up control. And I said, okay, let's do it. I was just ready. I was like, let's, let's just get this over with. I just remember being like, this is just going to pass. This is just a random accident that's happening and, and we need to get it over with. So they do. They prep my hand. This is a part that I didn't know was happening in the sidelines that I found out after. The doctor had gotten hold of my husband and told him I actually had a 50% chance of survival. I don't know why I remember 10, but he remembers 50. And that if it was okay with him, they wanted to try this innovative surgery and keep me awake and go into my wrist. And Nick said, absolutely. So that was happening in the sidelines. Right after that conversation is when the doctor came into the room, the surgeon came into the room and changed the plan. The entire time I was keeping one eye open at a time, laying down on the table. I had to keep my hand clenched on a bar. I remember I had to hold onto a bar and they turned off all the lights and they were working with screens. And from the reflection of the screens was a metal piece of metal in the dark room that I was staying focused on. And I just kept my eyes open the entire time. I did not want to close my eyes because if I closed my eyes, you're going to feel something and you're going to get scared and move. That was like my Jedi mind trick. I just stayed kind of removed out of the situation, just focusing on this light, this reflection. And then right when they touched the clock, I finally felt something. I felt, it felt like a piece of metal hitting my brain and scraping it. And I said, ow, ow, ow. And then they stopped. And the surgeon said, Anise, you're doing a really good job. We're going to do two more scrapes and then you're done. You're going to feel two more pinches, two more scrapes. I said, it's scraping me. It's pinching. I didn't know what it was. They said, we just need you to stay still. We need you to stay still. And so I just kept repeating, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to move. And when he did scrape it again, I remember going da, 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 to just get it over with. And when he pulled the clot out through the syringe, through my vein, 
it felt like the worst headache in the world, like a migraine headache being sucked out through my brain. It just like being sucked out of my brain. That's what it, exactly what it felt like. And it was like, oh, that feels so much better. And he took the clot out. And then all of a sudden, once he was done, I raised my head and I looked at my feet and I wiggled my toes. And all of a sudden I could see everything again. And the room starts cheering. People start clapping. And the surgeon is like going back and forth. He's taking pictures of my clot. He's, it was this crazy feeling in the air. And, and I, ha I felt like I had to crack a joke. I was like, I didn't know why I had the stroke. So I was like, I'm gonna eat chicken and broccoli for the rest of my life. I just was like, I'm gonna be so healthy. I thought this was because I, I don't know, I wasn't eating healthy or something. Anissa's stroke was life-threatening. However, she's made a remarkable recovery thanks to that clot removal procedure. Still to come on Stroke Stories, Anise talks about finding out what caused her stroke. They gave me a CAT scan, they gave me an MRI, they gave me ultrasound on my legs and a heart test to make sure I didn't have any blockage in my heart. All the results come back by day three and when the doctors came in and said, listen, all of your tests came back fine. What has happened is you have a, a tear, a teeny tiny tear in the artery that goes up to your brain. And dealing with post-stroke anxiety. One of the helpers told me to get a smartwatch because when you fall, it calls 911. That alone has given me peace of mind. I do have it strapped to my wrist. I'm not really that type of person. I didn't ever want to be wearing technology. But now, of course, it helped my anxiety and it helped me get back to normal. Like, I'm all for it. Anise was one of the first patients at Westchester Medical Center to receive this type of thrombectomy. They didn't even need to put a stitch on the incision. They bandaged it up. They wheeled me into a recovery unit where I had to stay lying down for 24 hours. They had to keep pressure on the incision for five hours. After five hours, they took it off and simply put on a Band-Aid. And I do have a teeny tiny scar, but it's not even the width of a pencil. The nurse who was sitting at my bedside let me sneak my husband in because during coronavirus, you can only have one visitor for four hours a day and you can't have a visitor in the recovery unit, but she let me for some reason sneak him in. And he was like, oh my God, what happened today? And we, I was in shock. I was just laying there in bed, keep going over the story. I just kept repeating it. I was like, I was at the bagel shop and then I collapsed. I just kept going the, over the story over and over and over again. And then he, he said goodbye. He said, I'll see you tomorrow. I had to stay there for five days. The next day, I was wheeled into ICU, could not sleep. This is a common theme with strokes I'm finding out. Could not sleep, did not want the stroke to come back. We did not know why I had the stroke. So I was like, no way, I'm staying awake. But then in the morning after I had been, so my stroke happened at 7.45 a.m. By 9 a.m. the next day, the neurosurgeons started making their rounds. And this one guy walks into my room and asks to see my groin. And I said, no, they went in through my wrist. And he said, you're the patient? And I said, yeah. And he was like, oh my gosh, we're going to put you through a workout today. We need to figure out why you had this stroke. And I said, okay. And then he told the nurses, let her sit up and, you know, see how she does. So it was neurosurgeon after neurosurgeon coming by just to meet me. And they were amazed. They were bringing teams with them 
and taking pictures of me raising both of my arms at the same time, smiling. That's a typical stroke thing. You have to smile and both sides match. This one guy had me tell my story and he made all of his team put their phones down and listen. He was really dynamic. He was like, this is why we're doing what we're doing. These people aren't just numbers. You know, these, these are actual people with stories like this. And that was the next day. They gave me a CAT scan. They gave me an MRI. They gave me ultrasound on my legs and a heart test to make sure I didn't have any blockage in my heart. All the results come back by day three. And when the doctors came in and said, listen, all of your tests came back fine. What has happened is you have a, a tear, a teeny tiny tear in the artery that goes up to your brain, the basilar artery. And that flap of the little inner tear of the inner lining was enough to create a, a blood clot. And it was about three centimeters. Then he said, you're going to have to be on blood thinners for the next 90 days. These things usually clear up in 90 days and all of your other tests are fine. He was like, if you get your body mass index down to 24, I have like 40 pounds to lose. He said, you could live to be 112. And at that point I was like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, like I was just insanely grateful in a different state of gratitude. Anise continued her recovery in hospital. Then I had so much you know, time in the hospital. I had to stay there until my blood thinners thinned my blood out enough and my liver levels were normal. I don't take pills or anything. So after being given a pill, my liver levels kind of like shot out of the sky. And by day five, it was my last day to go. I started suffering anxiety and I started freaking out and I had, I've never had anxiety I was like, nurse, nurse, something's happening to me. I, I need Tylenol. I need something else. They're like, we can't give you anything else. What's happening to you is you're having anxiety. Anxiety feels like a stroke, which is horrible. Another doctor came by, another surgeon, and they were like, I was there with you when you had the surgery. And he put it into perspective. He said, Anise, 60% of the people have depression after a stroke. The other 30% have anxiety. He's like, you've been given anxiety. He was like, I want you to stop thinking about the stroke if you can and start thinking about the new card that you've been given. You've been given a second chance at life. And because at that point in the hospital, I was voice recording my story, just recounting every teeny little bit that happened, going over it and over it and over it in my mind. And one of the doctors came by and said, your recovery is a miracle. No one has a recovery like that. Only 10% of the people who have a stroke have a recovery on the table. And that was another thing. Like I, I just didn't know how to process it. So I was just going over. It's just like any traumatic thing you're, I was going over and over and over to get in my mind. I still had some trouble walking only because I was fatigued and my, my brain was wasted. It was just tired. I needed rest. So it was kind of like being on bed rest. They let me out of the hospital. I only needed help walking around the hospital because I was afraid. Of, I had anxiety and I didn't like having all of the IVs in me. But once I was home by the third day, I was, you know, when I had energy, I would be ready to use my energy. When I didn't have energy, I had to just lay down. So we had a bunch of people 
fly out to help with my son because I was not able to keep up with him. I was recovering in the fact that um, I was tired. My brain did need to rest. And they said, with your artery over the next 90 days, you do need to take it easy. Why did this happen? One of the surgeons said, it's a complete fluke. You can tear your inner lining of your artery just by coughing or sneezing too hard. I don't know when I tore my artery. My husband and son and I all got really sick in May and we were afraid it was COVID. They, Nick got tested and it wasn't COVID and I didn't have time to get tested. I was taking care of two kids at the time. I'm pretty sure it wasn't COVID, but we were coughing so hard. It was actually hurting my throat to cough. I've never coughed that hard in my life. It's not an exaggeration either. It was just one of those things, like even when it was happening in May, I was like, I never get sick with a cough. But I thought, you know, that's the only time I've had a coughing fit or a sneezing fit. I don't have allergies here in upstate New York. And that could have been where I tore my artery. My coughing lasted about until May 21st. So it would have taken two months for that clot to form if that was the case. What I've noticed is my brain does kind of blip out a little bit. Like, for instance, the other day I started to say, have you ever done? And I was like, had, have, had, has, has, like that. It was like this, a stutter that I haven't ever really had before. So I have to take things slow and I blank out. My anxiety was very strong when I was alone, but I've had help here for the past two months. One of the helpers told me to get a smartwatch because when you fall, it calls 911. That alone has given me peace of mind. I do have it strapped to my wrist. I'm not really that type of person. I didn't ever want to be wearing technology. But now, of course, it helped my anxiety and it helped me get back to normal. Like, I'm all for it. I mean, if it's going to help. And it also helped me start walking again without being afraid. So that is kind of one thing I do want to definitely promote people who have anxiety after a stroke. Get a smartwatch, whatever watch you can. If it calls 911 then you at least have that peace of mind. And Anise gives her advice to loved ones of a stroke survivor. Obviously, it's good to offer support, but it's also good to give the person space because what has just happened is this huge life shift, even if you have recovery, a huge recovery, okay? Even if you have to learn how to walk again. It's you who has to learn how to walk, right? It's the patient. So even though everybody wants to help, everybody is like, oh my gosh, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? You need that that patient, the stroke patient needs that time alone to process too. Like this has just changed your whole entire life. Even if you don't have a recovery, just like me. It's changed everything. It's made you hyper aware. It's given you anxiety. It may have given you depression. It's that person needs to figure out their new card. Like the doctor said, focus on the new card that you've been given. You didn't die. Focus on the new card. What is the new card? What does the new card look like for you? When you have that time to take time for yourself, you know, envision your new card. Maybe you, you'll become a stroke ambassador. Maybe you'll become a therapist. Maybe once you regain all of your strength, you can help others. 
in that capacity, or maybe you want nothing to do with it. Maybe you're just like, I don't ever want to live that again. I'm going to go become a botanist, you know, whatever. You have to take time for yourself and the loved ones have to understand that that needs to happen with the patient as well. It can't just be 24 seven taking care of this person. The person needs to figure it out for themselves as well. That's all a part of the growing process. And for peace of mind, get that smartwatch. <laughs> Anise was one of the lucky ones. She's been able to return to an almost normal life, but admits that her outlook has changed for the better. Coming up in the next episode of Stroke Stories. I was in the office, just come off a phone call, and I felt like a small pop in the back of my head, and then um, a severe headache come on, which I thought was a migraine or just a normal headache starting. So as a guy does, I took two tablets, sort of eased, oh, I'll carry on. Well, one of my colleagues noticed my colour had drained, so I so I don't feel very good, I'm going to nip home, I'm gonna, I'll go to bed, and I'll see you tomorrow. Please do subscribe to Stroke Stories and rate and comment on the episodes you hear. And if you are or you know of a stroke survivor and there's a story you can share, please contact via Twitter or Instagram. Our DMs are always open. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. <laughs>